Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, Fall of the House of Sunshine is offering episode commentary to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. Stories. We all have them. Some have pockets full, some only a few stray story crumbs. But some crumbs get lost in the couch. But this is the vacuum that will suck those crumbs and then give them to you. You want crumbs? Okay, crumb lover, here it comes. Welcome to Fuzz Town Stories. Today's tale, Home on the Strange, Part 1. The Sheridan Inn was too fancy. That was the first thing Gilbert Peach thought as he looked at the building. It was three stories tall, all under a long gambrel roof with broad porches. The hotel at one point was run by Buffalo Bill Cody. Or was it Wild Bill Hickok? One of those western lawmen. In truth, Gilbert had a hard time keeping all the various cowboys straight. He didn't like westerns. Or the west. Gilbert was in this godforsaken square state for one reason only. The occult. Gilbert Peach had waded into the waters of the paranormal when he met Charles Fort at a party. Fort was an investigator and promoter of the occult and bizarre. He would often hold meetings with psychics from around the world in his home. Gilbert enjoyed these seances as he was desperate to find proof of a life beyond this one. He had recently returned from the Great War and was looking for meaning. Gilbert soon found himself in an affair with the Mongolian spiritualist Terbish. Terbish was known for his raucous seances where he would shout angrily at the spirits and throw the ankle bones of sheep to read fortunes. Terbish considered himself neither male nor female, even though he had the plumbing of a male. Plumbing that Gilbert enjoyed, even if he didn't fully consider himself a lavender. Gilbert had, since his boyhood oat-sowing days, floated freely between him's and hers. One night, Terbish was in a dark mood, and he explained an old Mongolian tradition, the cursed name. Terbish was a taboo name. His name meant not that one. It was given to confuse an evil spirit that had caused his brother's death at the age of four. So, when the evil spirit's boss would try to figure out which boy to take, he'd say, not that one. And the spirit would reply, so don't take him? And the spirit's boss would counter, no, take not that one. This little vaudeville-esque routine would so infuriate the evil imps that they'd just move on to Jim or Bill or, or whatever the Mongol equivalent was, leaving Terbish safe and sound. 
Because of the evil spirit's natural dislike of wordplay, there were plenty of Mongols named Not a Human or Not That One or Nobody. This trickery had seemed to work for Terbish, but their happiness would not last. Terbish had a particularly successful show at the Carnival de Mysterie, a rotting warehouse that had been converted into various stages for psychics to perform. Terbish was drawing great crowds, but his fame rankled other less popular spiritualists. One was Dr. Calcutta, a swarthy short Greek man who dressed as an Indian yogi. When his greatest patron left him for the ankle-bone fortunes of Terbish, Dr. Calcutta had them both killed. The murder sent Gilbert on a downward spiral into the seedy spiritualist underworld, both figuratively and then literally, when he ventured into a secret ossuary below 14th Street in Manhattan. Through these opium and pistol-filled adventures, Gilbert found he had a taste for adventure and the occult, so he hung out a shingle advertising his services as an occult detective. The year had been profitable for Gilbert. The East Coast in the 1920s was a hotbed for unnatural activities. Ghosts seemed to be as thick as factory smoke and as menacing as the gin-running gangsters. His only real close call was dealing with a wareham named Gingham Albus on Long Island. That luckily ended with minimal bloodshed and a broken arm and that extra bus ticket. He was still sore about getting stuck with that. All in all, business was good, and he hadn't needed to leave the tri-state area until now. But the man who hired him paid well, and in advance. Wyoming. He wasn't even sure where to begin. He started with the hotel bar. Spirits to find the spirits. That was his motto, which was more of a cover of his excessive drinking, but it sometimes worked. It also kept the memories of the war away, or made them worse, depending on the night. A woman whose face was covered in a galaxy of freckles and warm mud-stained boots and overalls tried to buy him a drink. Something about her rubbed him wrong. Her mess of red curls reminded him of a bad time, so he ignored her and drank by himself. During the day, he'd walk, letting fate decide his course. Somehow, his feet always managed to find their way back to the bar come nightfall. He repeated this cycle of walking and drinking for three days. On the fourth day, he found his walking led him to a tall and, to be honest, a bit portly Native American man who was digging in some dirt. Gilbert approached him. They exchanged pleasantries. Gilbert learned he was a member of the Crow Nation and was currently in the process of burying a fish. Now, Gilbert inquired if this was some sort of Indian custom. Now, he said no, that it was just a fish that had meant a lot to him. He introduced himself as Mitch. Gilbert then introduced himself and asked if Mitch was a family name or if he had a traditional Indian name. Mitch did not, but then asked Gilbert if he had a traditional Indian name. Gilbert admitted that he too did not. Gilbert wasn't sure why he would have an Indian name, being that he'd never met a Native American before, but then again, why should Mitch have one just because of his heritage? 
All this talk of names and native culture tired Gilbert out, and he asked Mitch if he wanted to get a drink. Gilbert often let fate help solve his cases. Some would consider this lazy, but in the world of the occult, happenstance and coincidence were often vital tools, at least according to Gilbert. He explained some of these ideas to Mitch, who seemed most interested in drinking his cocktail. He had ordered an extremely complicated concoction that annoyed the barman to no end. It was garnished with both a pickled onion and a bit of licorice. Mitch chewed on the licorice as Gilbert told him what he was after. The Society of the Star-Spangled Slinger. A group of radical female suffragettes, hell-bent on resurrecting Susie Shot, The fastest gun in a bustle. The corseted sure shot. The only woman to be sheriff of ten cities who married a cactus on a dare and roped a mountain lion and then spanked it with her bare hands before releasing it back into the wild as a warning to every other varmint west of the Mississippi. If they could resurrect her there, there was no telling what they'd do. The Society of the Star-Spangled Slinger was formed by a posse of dames who, after the passage of the 19th Amendment, decided to push female rights to an extreme by taking control of the government. Their secret cabal was formed in Cheyenne, Wyoming, on the site where women first gained the right to vote in 1869. It was the first place in the U.S. to give the female sex suffrage, and so they felt Wyoming had a special power. The group next ransacked the grave of Susie Schott and ferreted her remains to a secret lair somewhere in the Bighorn Mountains. This was the story Gilbert relayed to the portly Native American as they worked their way through the varied offerings of the bar. But how can they bring the dead back to life? Well, to be honest... There's about six quick ways that Gilbert knew of. But this rogue female organization had a unique plan. It was why Gilbert took the case. It was a rainy afternoon in New York when he stepped into Gilbert's office. Well, it was really an apartment slash office as being an occult investigator paid the bills, but didn't leave a lot left in the kitty. Beardy McMenamin was known for his odd novelty tune, Beardy Goes Down which was recorded by Edison a decade or so back. The song was banned soon after, due to its reference to farts and an old elder god. The Music Society of Decency was very anti-elder gods, also liquor. But this case wasn't about censorship. Rather, during his visit to this ancient creature, he took a piece of it, a piece of what he called fuzz. This fuzz radiated a sort of power, dark and tangled, which a group of radical women had stolen. Gilbert wasn't retrieving this fuzz for purely altruistic reasons. Well, first, Barry paid him a handsome sum, but he also planned to take a bit of fuzz for himself. If this was part of an ancient being, it would be worth having. But he didn't tell Mitch about this part of the plan. He instead focused on stopping these nasty women from resurrecting the gunslinger. Mitch took all this information in stride and seemed more interested in his drinks than any of the supernatural elements. He also ordered two roast chickens, which he single-handedly ate, and then stacked the bones into a small tower. As evening gave way to near morning, 
Mitch took the poultry ossuary from the bar room and out into the crisp Wyoming air. Gilbert followed after him, unsure of the large native's plan. Mitch walked into the scrubland toward the Bighorn Mountains, which were practically invisible in the darkness. The stars were dim and the moon seemed missing from the sky. Mitch mumbled something as he walked, tossing the bones as he went. Gilbert called after him, but he was afraid to get too close. Once the bones were gone, Mitch stopped. Then, with the seeming nonchalance of removing a robe, Mitch removed his skin. Under it was a small, furry woman. She turned to face Gilbert. The felty fur on her body rippled in the breeze. She called out a prayer to the Elder Fuzz, and then swore that none would halt the resurrection at Susie's shot. Gilbert realized he'd been duped. But at this point, it was too late. The tossed-aside chicken bones started to grow and snap, and from the bones, great fuzzy bison rose up from the ground. Their eyes bright red, and their fur a deep purple. They snorted yarn, and in a flash, they charged toward Gilbert. Before he could let out a sound, they had trampled and smothered him in a fuzz. Fuzztown Stories is a Roy Gold production. It was written by Jonathan Goldberg with music by David Origlieri. Today's episode was read by Nathaniel Kent. Find out more about the show and cast at podmusical.com. Find out more about lucid dreaming from Celine, the girl at the laundromat that also forgot to bring her book. As always, thanks for listening and have a suntabulous bicuspid of a day. Can't get enough for the House of Sunshine? Then join me, Numola historian Lyman Keys, in the Himalaya Plus section, where you'll get commentaries, special exclusive episodes where I answer your questions about Numola and beyond, as well as a community to chat with fellow Sunshine fans. Join Himalaya Plus and speak with the creators about the show and get exclusive updates and access. I'll see you in Himalaya Plus. Lyman Keys. Libonachu in Himalaya Plus. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.